Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church. This is Pastor Jason. Well, finally we are getting this sermon out to you. This was from Reverend Julie Thompson when she came to preach on Father's Day, but we had a whole bunch of different things happen and I was away for a couple weeks and so this sermon never got posted. But for those of you who are excited to hear Julie because you missed it on Father's Day, here is your chance. So Uh, Julie preached for us, and as you may have heard, she has officially become our new Associate Pastor of Spiritual Formation, and we're so excited to have her, and she will begin here on September 1st. So uh, until then, here is an opportunity to listen to Julie, and I pray that you have a blessed week. Well, good morning, and it's great to be with you all here this morning. I am thrilled to be able to uh, bring God's word to you this day. Since this is my first time speaking with you, I thought I would practice what leadership expert Stephen Covey often says, and that is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. With this in mind, I chose two scripture readings that are pretty much the main thing, and that is uh, two scriptures known as the greats, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. So first I'm going to read uh, from Deuteronomy 6. That is what is known as the Great Commandment. Moses is charging the people of Israel uh, one last time before they head to the land of Canaan. So let us listen to those words. You can um, follow along. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. Just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now the New Testament scripture reading, which is the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We know this is the Great Commission And we believe that when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he was also speaking to those who would come long after those first 12. So this is right before Jesus ascends into heaven, after the end of the 40 days after he rose from the dead. Let us listen again for God's holy word. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, when my husband Daniel and I were engaged to be married, we knew that we shared many interests. We both love the outdoors. We like to hike and run and bike and ski. We both love to fix up old houses. In fact, we have done that three times and lived to tell about it. We both were engaged as leaders in youth ministry and on mission trips. So during our engagement, we made a conscious effort to try to learn things about each other and practice things that each other liked that the other one didn't. So here's how that went. I love to dance. I was even dancing in the pew to the music. Daniel, not so much. But he agreed, good sport that he is, to take a six-week ballroom dancing class with me so that we could waltz at our wedding. It was my mother's only demand. Daniel loves to golf. I love to play miniature golf, but I had never stepped foot on a golf course. So I signed up for a six-week golf course at a local community college so I could golf with all the rest of his family on vacation in the Pocono Mountains, where they all go each year. And all of them golf, all ages, multiple generations. Well, I wish I had time to tell you about our adventures with the Foxtrot, the Cha-Cha, and the Electric Slide, but today I'll only tell you about my introduction to the world of golf. You see, since I knew how ruthlessly competitive I was at miniature golf, I thought real golf would be a breeze. I mean, they're practically the same thing, right? I went to class faithfully each week, I read the notes, I learned the grip and the stance and the swing, I learned how to drive and chip and putt, and I practiced, and I watched the other people in the class, and the instructor said nice things, like, nice swing, now you've got the right idea. What else did I need to know? I I was ready. Now, mind you, this six-week course did not involve actually stepping onto a golf course. Details, details. But I figured whatever they had left out in the class that my golfer fiancé would show me and I'd be good to go. So off we went to the family vacation. I was raring to go, ready to hit the links. And on the first round, I started with a great drive, feeling pretty good about myself. But before we reached the second hole, I realized that perhaps there were a few gaps in my golf education. See, I stood where I wasn't supposed to stand, and I walked where you weren't supposed to walk, and I talked when you weren't supposed to talk. I think I broke all the etiquette rules by the second hole. But it got better. As I played more and more throughout the vacation with different family members, which Daniel decided was probably a better idea, and I played with them, that was okay, all kinds of teachers, um, I could never remember which club I was supposed to use for which shot. So I was always asking, now, what do those little numbers mean again? What's the difference between a three and a seven, and what's that one that's my favorite? 
Which one's the pitching wedge? I like that one. So I just said, why can't I just play the whole game with my favorite club? I mean, it'd be so much easier that way. I don't have to remember all these numbers. I got some eye rolls for that one. To my surprise, I finished my first game with a respectable score for a beginner. And the more I played, the better I got. My etiquette improved. And each time I played more and more, I picked up a few more tips. And I learned the lingo. And I added words like birdie and mulligan to my vocabulary. I even got a cute golf outfit. And I started to really enjoy it. And I was starting to think about how I could continue golfing throughout the year so I could get better. But then I got home. And my interest in golf just sort of went downhill. There were some obstacles. I I didn't really have any good friends that golfed. I didn't live near any golf courses I could afford. I didn't even have my own clubs. I think I borrowed someone else's. It just wasn't a priority in my life. And little by little, I went from playing a few times a year to once a year to not at all. Then I had kids, busy chasing them around. And it wasn't until a couple years ago that I dusted off my clubs for a few embarrassing rounds that I realized I hadn't been on a golf course in more than a decade. You see, I knew the basics of golf. I knew some golf lingo. I even looked like I knew what I was doing. But the truth is, I never became a golfer. That took hard work and practice. Now think for a minute about the great golfers, the legendary pros, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Nancy Lopez, who else? Phil Mickelson, uh, Tiger Woods, though he's had some trouble lately. Um, he's still a legend, gotta give him that. He's been playing since he was three. Great golfers, no matter who they are, have passion. Passion. And they have discipline to practice. They are committed to getting better day after day after day. Many of them started when they were young, young children. They probably had private lessons. They probably had a teacher or a coach that mentored them and invested in them, passed on the wisdom that they knew. And if we dig a little deeper into the lives of golfers, we discover two things that set them apart from the average golfer. First is that great golfers view playing golf as a lifelong journey. And some of them talk about it in spiritual terms. It's true. You can go to Barnes & Noble, see a whole shelf of books like God and Golf, you know, and A Mirror to My Soul, and things like that. The second thing is they view themselves as lifelong students. And a few golfers also share a third characteristic, and that is they have a sense of obligation about passing on what they have learned. They want to invest in the lives of young people as a response of gratitude to what others have done for them. Maybe you've heard, you know, there's different, you know, Honor Palmer golf camp or workshop or things like that. They want to keep passing that on. Think about that for a minute. Lifelong students on a lifelong journey, that is how golfers view themselves. 
Can you imagine what the church would look like if we thought of ourselves as lifelong students on a lifelong journey? If we never sense that we arrive, that we get to a place where we've learned enough, a, learning, a journey of learning and discovery. And what would the church look like if we viewed passing, uh, passing on our faith to our children as a responsibility, as an obligation, like Moses talked about? Well, here's a little bit of depressing news. Um, studies show that the average American Christian reaches spiritual maturity at age 14, probably confirmation age, and then they plateau until age 75. Why? I think after confirmation, many people feel like, I've graduated. I've learned. I've learned the basics. I'm, I'm good to go. They stop stretching and learning and growing. And their spiritual muscles atrophy. And some would even say that our current church numbers are a result of our inability to keep those teenagers. They come back when they're ready to get married and baptize their first child often. They stop practicing. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. When he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And in that passage, the only command there is make. He said, make disciples. A disciple, what he means there, is just a student or a follower. You could be a disciple of Plato or a disciple of Moses or Socrates, which meant you'd read their teachings and, and learn about them. But for Jesus, it didn't mean that. For Jesus, being a disciple was not about reading books and storing up knowledge. It was not about going to a six-week class at a community college and passing the test. It didn't happen by going to class or reading a book or learning enough lingo to fake it. Like golf, being a disciple requires commitment and follow-through. And it doesn't happen overnight. It is a lifelong process and takes lots of practice. So Jesus said to his disciples, come and follow me. He didn't say, one of you go to seminary and come back and tell us what you learned. He didn't appoint a committee or a task force. He charged them all to go and make disciples. You, all of you, go and make disciples as you are going through life. You're learning, you're working, you're sleeping and eating. As you are going is what the original Greek is. Make disciples. So how do we do that? Well, I return to my golf game for assistance. Any golfer will tell you, you need at least three clubs to have a good golf game. You can't play with the same club for the whole game like I wanted to. just doesn't work. And great golfers always know which club to use when. Which one for which drive, for which approach shot, which putt. Well, there's a book called Intentional Disciple Making by an author named Ron Bennett. And he draws this analogy. Well, first he says, in order for disciples to grow, we have... Three ways of growing in our faith. And he compares them to golf clubs, for which I need my visual aids here and here. 
First is the driver. I think I saw that slide earlier. The driver with a really big head. I think they're getting bigger and bigger. Did anyone notice that? <laughs> they're huge. So the driver, that's the one that drives the ball long distances, but has limited accuracy, right? It looks really cool when you swing it, but you don't always get it where you want to. Then you have the irons. Those are all the ones with the numbers that I can never remember. Those are, don't go quite as long, but they have more accuracy. That's the club you want to use when you get, want to get it on the green. And then the last one that you probably recognize if you are a miniature golfer, the putter. It's the only one they give you. That's probably why I like it, because you, know, you, you don't have to think about it too much. This is the most accurate club, and it's used for very short distances. It's the one that gets the ball in the hole. And I've recently learned that a lot of golfers think if they're having trouble with their putter, it must be the putter, so they get a new one. Anyway, in terms of discipleship, Bennett calls drivers large group gatherings. Anything of 70 or more people. Like this. A worship service, a rally, a conference. Large group experiences are great and that they remind us that we are part of this worldwide family of faith. The church universal. Church with a big C. We can experience the transcendence of God and majesty of God and sort of have this mountaintop experience from a large group setting. You know, get inspired and motivated. The downside is, in a large group setting, with just, just with drivers, you, you're not really connected to the people around you, right? We're all facing the same direction. You're unlikely to share your burdens with those sitting with you. You can't really show concern for those around you. Our focus is whatever is going on up front. So just as a golfer would never play an entire game with a driver, in order to be a disciple, a Christian can't only play with their drivers, with only worship experiences. It's important. It's, it's the most important. But we can't stop there. That's where the irons come in. The irons in the life of a disciple are the small group experience. A gathering of 4 to 12 people you can meet in a home or church or Coffee shop, wherever you meet. Well, maybe not the coffee shop. Anyway, you find a place to meet, uh, to study scripture, to share burdens with one another, to pray. You're sharing life together. You're sharing joys and concerns and fears and holding each other up, encouraging each other. We need that in our lives, to care for others and to be cared for. So we need those irons to grow just can't happen in a large group setting the same way. And then, of course, the last club, as I said, is the putter. Any golfers here? A few? Yeah, okay. See if you can finish this expression. Drive for show, putt for... Very good. Putt, cut, putt for dough. That's how you win the big bucks. No matter how good you are of hitting the ball far or getting it on the green... If you can't putt, you can't win. There are times that I would get a ball on the green in like one or two shots, and then it would take seven tries to get the ball in the hole. The putter is used twice as much as any other club in your bag. It doesn't take great athletic ability, but it takes lots and lots of practice. That's where the game is won. 
And for a disciple, putters are one-on-one relationships. One person encouraging another. And of the three discipleship dynamics, this one is the least understood and the least practiced. We think, ah, I'm good. I don't need that. I got my group. I got my worship. I don't need a personal mentor, coach. Well, maybe you need to be mentoring someone else. We need those people in our lives who are going to ask us the tough questions. Are you sure about this? Have you prayed about this? Is this a good match for your gifts? Is this the right time? Ask the tough questions. People who help us grow in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. So think about that. If you're not in that kind of relationship, maybe God is calling you to to mentor someone or to be mentored. So, review. Drivers, irons, and putters. Large group experiences, small group experiences, one-on-one relationships. We need all three of these to grow as a disciple of Christ. And just like a skilled golfer, we as the church need to learn when and how to use each one most effectively. If you're like me, and like most disciples, you're going to favor one over the other. And maybe you're completely ignoring some of them. But for maximum impact, we need all three to grow. So think about the ministry of Jesus, how he modeled this. He could have preached in coliseums and rallies for the multitude, but he knew that if he was going to pass on his faith, that wasn't going to be enough. He couldn't just give them inspirational messages. He rarely did that. Instead, he invested in those 12 who invested in others. Think about Paul. He invested in Timothy and then said, Timothy, I'm entrusting you to share this with others, passing that on through groups and through one-on-one. Well, if I had to guess, I would say that probably many of us are not playing with all of our clubs. We're probably relying on one more than the other. So maybe it's time to to dust off some of those clubs of spiritual growth that we haven't been using. And it may be time to do a little more practicing. Well, in case I've completely lost you on the golf analogy and you're not a golfer, I'd like to close with another example of something that needs lots of consistent practice. And that is playing a musical instrument. Like I'm sure these musicians in our band didn't just show up here ready to play. I'm sure that they had lots and lots of practice. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my daughter, Claire, who's with her permission. Claire's been playing violin since first grade, and she just graduated from high school two weeks ago. So for 12 years, she's been playing the same instrument. And for the first nine years, when we lived in South Carolina and then in Georgia, Claire studied the Suzuki method, which is learning the same way you learn a language, which is by ear. So she didn't learn to read music until fifth grade, I think. So for most of the first decade, she practiced every day. She had a private lesson every week. She had group lessons every other week. Sometimes she went to week-long camps where she met kids from all over the world who played um, the same Suzuki method. And then later in middle school, she did orchestras in school and the community in addition to the lessons, private and group. Then came high school. Life got a little busier. 
classes got a little harder, sports and jobs and boys and youth group and all the rest. We moved to Pennsylvania. She tried a couple teachers and just didn't find a good fit. So dropped the private lessons. And she continued with the school and church orchestras with rehearsals every week. And then ever so gradually, unless she was preparing for a solo, she stopped practicing. And I'd bug her about it. Claire. And she'd say, Mom, I have rehearsals three times a week. I'm good. She was only playing with her driver. And she lamented as she played with more and more advanced musicians in her new school that her stand assignment gradually moved from first chair, back a few stands to third, and then back to the back of the first violins. And she knew it was because she had stopped the private lessons and didn't practice the way she used to. And the real test came a couple months ago when she had her music scholarship audition at Eastern University, where she's going to begin this fall. It was an intense hour and a half experience, part performance, part lesson, part interview with the director and assistant director of the music department. They asked her to play a concerto and do scales and sight reading and all this kind of thing. And then came some questions, and I'm like straining my ear, trying to listen to the door. And after she finished playing, the director, you know, said some kind words. And the first question he asked her is, who is your teacher? heart sunk. (laughs) Should have made her do those lessons. He said, who is your teacher? And after an awkward pause, Claire explained, oh, I I don't have one right now. Explained why. And he said, oh, well, well, that explains it. Because you missed a few things, and your teacher would have caught those. I was sure she had blown it, but she was great. Um, The director came out and said, I look for three things, passion, teachability, and talent. Claire has all three. I'll be in touch in two weeks. The news was good, but it was a wake-up call of what happens when we stop practicing. When we say, I've got this. I'm good. i got years under my belt. I don't need to do that daily thing. When we decide that we can go it alone, that we don't need to be challenged, we don't need a group or a person bugging us, getting in our business, I'm good. And we stop stretching, and we stop growing. Well, compare this to the boy who sat in the first chair. He'll be attending Juilliard in the fall. He says... I started playing when I was three. I stayed with music because I'm passionate about it as a whole. I plan my homework and life around practicing, which is three to six hours a day. I have rehearsals in Philadelphia or lessons in New Jersey during the week, which take the entire evening. Then on weekends, I have rehearsals in Philly and the entire day Saturday, and then I have composition lessons on Sunday. Whew. It's an intense kid. But this is the part that got me. He said, what's the best thing and worst thing about playing? He answered the first, and he said, the worst thing is, he quotes virtuoso Joshua Heifetz, who I don't know, but 
He's a virtuoso, so he must know something. He says, if I don't practice for a day, I notice. If I don't practice for two days, the critics notice. If I don't practice for three days, everyone notices. So my question for us is, are we practicing? Are we using all our clubs? Are we remembering that we are on a lifelong journey as lifelong students, growing all the ways that Jesus modeled for us? Not just the familiar ones, not just the comfortable ones, not just our favorites. So my prayer for us is that we would remember who our teacher is, that we would follow him with passion, and that we would continue to practice, practice, practice. Amen. Amen.